The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm so excited to have Margot Blackstone with me. She is the host of the Indie Birth Podcast and an independent midwife in Minnesota. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Margot. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk with you today. We're going to be talking about the culture of the birth of birth and specifically the culture of the birth industry and how we can um, support the development of the culture and how that ultimately affects births everywhere. (laughs) Family trees, Saul's world hunger. So let's dive right in. (laughs) So tell us about how did you get into the whole birth world? Okay. Yeah. So my background, I guess, before getting into birth was, um, I was, I was really young. I had not had children myself. Um, I was in a master's program for applied criminology of all things. And I got really sort of like disenchanted with the topic of research I had been focused on and was looking for something new to explore. And somehow, and I don't exactly know, I wish I knew the origin story more clearly myself, but somehow I got really interested in um, the way that midwives had been criminalized um, uh, over the course of the last couple hundred years. And so that was what I was studying in my first- Wow. Yeah, that's what I was doing, like, my big research reports on for some of my grad classes. And in the middle of all of that, I realized, you know, I think I want to shift course and go into doing birth work myself. Um, And away from the other dream, which had been to do more, like, policy work and criminal justice stuff. Um, So I pretty quickly um, got in touch with Marin. Green, who is the other half of the Indie Birth Association, the founder of Indie Birth, um, just by mentioning it to the right person. Like I just mentioned it to somebody at an event. Hey, I'm thinking about being a midwife. And she said, I've had two home births. You should meet the midwife I used. And it was just complete luck. And I don't know. Like, (laughs) I love the story. It's not your typical one. Yeah, I was studying law and criminal (laughs) criminal justice. And now I'm a midwife. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So we met, uh, Maren and I met a few weeks later and, um, the rest is history. I started an apprenticeship with her, um, after the semester ended, I didn't just drop out. Uh, I thought about it, but I was like, I'm going to finish the semester and then, uh, get started. So I started with her, uh, very beginning of January. I think it was January 1st, even 2011. Yeah. 2011. Oh, that is like ancient. Got it. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, um, so you're in Minnesota and you mentioned before we started recording, but I don't know anything cause you don't want to spoil it. Tell me right. about Minnesota laws, the, the culture in Minnesota. Super excited to hear. Sure. So in Minnesota, midwifery licensure is voluntary. So it's one of two States where that is explicitly the case. So Minnesota and Utah is the other one. So the way that the law is written here, um, you can choose to be licensed or you can choose not to be licensed. And I have chosen to not be licensed for a million reasons, um, which I'm happy to share more about. But um, that's kind of a unique, a unique thing. And it's a thing that I think is really important um, in terms of, you know, I think what we're going to be talking about, which is restoring or preserving autonomous midwifery um, options. Okay, so that, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's talk about why it's important to preserve autonomous midwifery. Why is it important that we respect the rights of midwives to practice independently, not, it, that's what you mean by this, right? Not connected with a, holis, a hospital or a group or not I mean, requiring them to license? Yeah. So I mean, both of those things, um, respecting the autonomy of midwives to be working independently on their own, not with other systems or institutions, but also to not be beholden to a set of rules and regulations um, put out by the state. Um, and so for me, it started, um, the, the, my understanding of this and my 
personal beliefs around it started again, before coming into birth, I came into wanting to be a midwife, knowing I didn't want to have a license. Um, like I said, I was studying criminal justice and applied criminology. Um, so you would think that I was kind of like, a I don't know. <laughs> um, but I was, I was the radical in the, in the program. Um, I was actually studying the way in which, you know, laws really restrict and oppress people. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes unintentionally and sometimes intentionally. So that's what I had been studying was the way that um, midwives essentially were legislated out of practice um, in the last, you know, hundred or so years um, all over the United States and then all over the world. Sort of midwife had been this loose thing that a person could call themselves and it was a community generated title. Mm -hmm. Um, It was something that the community recognized um, and it switched from being that to being something that only you could only call yourself if you jump through the right hoops in the right order. And, you know, there's some, some places where you can't even be a midwife. Uh, Florida is one um, without being a midwife who was trained at a specific midwifery school. Um, same with most of Canada, you have to go through a approved Canadian midwifery school. Um, and there's only one version of midwifery then that's sanctioned and taught and it becomes a monopoly. So, yeah. And the alternative is that uh, without this, without this licensure, you end up with different flavors and specialties. Yeah, and approaches. And it gives freedom to the midwife, but by extension, it then gives freedom to the families to make their own choices as well. So it started out, like I said, being kind of this philosophical thing for me that I was interested in um, seeing, like, how, how does that look? How would it look to be a midwife who isn't licensed by the state. Um, and then it became very personal for me. I have had two home births. I have two children. Um, and I, one was in Arizona and one was here in Minnesota. And with my health history, I have a history of high blood pressure, um, and did have high, high blood pressure during my pregnancies. Um, I, you know, technically by the letter of the law was not allowed to hire a licensed midwife. So I'm, I am one of the women who would be, um, you know, boxed out of the home birth option if mm-hmm. licensed midwifery were the only way to um, have a home birth. Well, no, you could hire, they're not, licensed midwives are not allowed to accept you. So it's, a, it's more of a requirement on them, not so much moms. You can right. hire anyone, but. Um, but if there are none, right. If there are right, no exactly because they've been legislated out, then there are no options. So you would be forced to, to do a high risk OB because. Yeah. Yeah. Or or do it myself at home, I guess. But but yeah, that's that's the thing is this preserving autonomous. Uh, this they, yeah, the other option is home birth, unassisted birth, which there are reasons people choose unassisted. Um, but I feel like if you're choosing unassisted because you're too afraid of the other option, that's not a good reason to choose unassisted. <laughs> you should be able to choose between an unassisted or a, an unlicensed home birth midwife. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's, it's like a, a messy jump to force women to make. And it's a messy process because, you know, that's a thing I think that's a misconception um, that unlicensed midwives would take anybody on, right? So, like, I just recently had... Um, one of the first times where I had a client who wanted to have a home birth and after meeting a couple of times and some things developing during her pregnancy, um, that were issues, you know, I had to have that conversation of like, you know, the state didn't say I can't do this cause I'm not, I'm not following their rules and regulations, but I'm saying I'm uncomfortable with this. So it's, it's, so it's not like I'll do any birth. No, unlicensed midwives are not you know, witches that practice in the backcountry. No, they're not. And me, no disrespect by the word witch, but just they're not crazies that are in the backwoods. No, they have, they have, you have to protect your livelihood. You have to protect your clients. Well, and just being, yeah, honest about your boundaries. So I think that's, that's what I'm really interested in, like is finding a way to be a midwife in a way that's authentic to my understanding from experience and also from all my, you know, didactic learning, um, that is uniquely mine as opposed to a set of rules and regulations that were handed to me, um, that feels, you know, external. So I think authentic midwifery leads to authentic birthing, um, because then, you know, these clients and women can be in conversation with and, and part of this messy process of like, here's who I am and here's what I have going on. And, you know, I'm a midwife and I'm a human too. And here's, 
here are my boundaries and, and under, here's my understanding of how to proceed and my best suggestions. And then it's this cool dance back and forth instead of it being so black and white. And mm-hmm. like in my case, if I had sat down with a, a licensed midwife, they would have said, well, not only and, you know, it wouldn't even be personal for them. It would be like, oh, my rule said I can't help you as opposed to like actually having to do that critical thinking around, you know, why can't I help you? And, and, and is this okay? And and what are the other pieces of the puzzle other than just this one label that you've been given? Mm-hmm. So I'm in Utah, the other state. Um, yeah. And so I guess I've taken for granted that we have so much choice here in Utah. And it sounds like in Minnesota, that in other states, you really, there's either the licensure or an unassisted birth, right? Yeah. Yes. So somebody, yeah. Okay. So tell me, what are the things that you are not allowed to take on by law as a licensed midwife in, in Minnesota? It's mm, a good question. I honestly, I would have to like look back through it. I moved here four years ago and um, I'm actually more familiar with the laws in Arizona where I was trained. Um, but in Minnesota, I'm trying to think what the... Like it's a, it's you can a, do uh, twins, for example. Can you do twins as an unlicensed or licensed midwife? I actually don't know the answer to that. And here, I think, is what is really interesting, too. This like other piece of this whole conversation, which is in Minnesota, the laws are actually pretty generous. Like, they're pretty pretty loose. Mm -hmm. Um, but so many midwives have internalized all the rules from other places that they're now like policing themselves. So even when like breach is allowed (laughs) technically, like they won't do it. Um, which is fine if somebody truthfully feels like that's not a good option for them to do as a midwife. Like, you know, if they're like, I don't have the experience or I don't, I have a lot of fear around that. Um, Twins is another example. Um, But, you know, the problem I see comes in when there are midwives who won't do those things, even if they're technically allowed to tell a person sitting in front of them, that's too dangerous, you need to have a hospital birth. Instead of saying, and I have a whole article I wrote on this called Go Risk Yourself. Instead of saying, that feels too high risk for me as a midwife, but there are other midwives who might feel differently. Um, And here's maybe some names and some referrals. Mm -hmm. So that transparency is what I think would be really amazing to see more of in our culture. Um, Like here locally, I I had a, a, someone that I met who had sat with a midwife who told her, um, I'm not comfortable doing a VBAC at home. You need to have a hospital birth. Home birth is not a good option for you. You're not a good candidate. Um, and so it wasn't until she, you know, asked other midwives in town, which a lot of people wouldn't even do, right. They would just take that like, oh, that's the midwifery perspective. I must be too high risk. Um, this mom did, though, go and ask for second opinions um, and then was able to to hire a home birth midwife who was okay with it. So which, wasn't okay. which wasn't you. <laughs> so, but I am okay with VBACs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a fan of VBACs too. Yeah, I had a client who hired an unlicensed, or client, a friend who hired an unlicensed midwife here in Utah and wanted to use a certain drug that isn't usually recommended in pregnancy and the midwife literally made it all about her. You decide, you take it to your, your inner self, you figure it out. And ultimately she decided to use this drug and I was nervous. <laughs> I'm like, okay, like as your friend, I am nervous about you using this drug. And she said, she said, well, I, this is what I've done. And it's not like she had an excuse or she had to like prove herself to me, but she did say like, this is my choice. And you remember like, you're all about choices and I have made this choice educated mm-hmm. I've educated myself about the risks and benefits and I feel like this is a drug I need to use and I was like that I will be there a hundred percent supporting you yeah yeah I think that that's what the heart of it really is and um you know when we start restricting midwifery we inherently start restricting women's choices and yeah. so um you know I think that there are also a lot of people who really like being put in the box you know as a as a pregnant woman like um, when I do interviews with people, I, I tell them that I say, I'm not the midwife for you. If you want someone who is just going to kind of run down the checklist, um, and do things routinely. And, you know, if you're out of the box, you're automatically not a candidate anymore for home birth. Like if you want that kind of like security, like that feeling of security that like there is a box and I'm still in it, like, that's not me. 
Um, and there are other midwives who, who practice that way. And so I think that's the beauty is, um, you know, where I live, there are all kinds. Um, and there's someone, there's the right person, there's the right midwife for each person, um, Mm -hmm. and what they're looking for. And I think that's the really cool conversation to have is like, how do we encourage, um, pregnant women to really figure out what it is they're looking for? Yeah. Talk about, um, what impact having, I'm going to put in quotes, the right midwife for you. Talk about the impact that has on your birth and your experience. Yeah. Um, I think it's huge. And it's one of those misconceptions that all midwives are the same um, or that all OBs are the same or that all nurse midwives are the same. Like there's um, sort of this misconception that it's like going shopping for tires or something, you know? Like, you know <laughs> well, like, even then there are choices. <laughs> right. right. And so, you know, I always encourage people at interviews to interview, I say interview as many midwives as you have time for and interest in, in interviewing um, because you might be surprised who the right fit is for you. And I personally don't want to be working with people who are the wrong fit for me. Exactly. I actually I just um, had two people that I had started working with who I said, who I, these were two different scenarios, but um, said, you know, like this isn't probably the right match anymore. And there's a bunch of other midwives around and encouraged them to, to look for someone else, even after they had hired me. So I guess I didn't answer your question though, which is like, how is it important? How does it matter? (laughs) No, what you're saying is amazing. Yeah. What impact does it have? I guess my big thing is that that you can always find the right provider for you and the provider that was great for your cousin's friend, sister's niece is may actually cause you a lot of trauma. And totally. so, like the impact of picking the right provider for you. It's huge. And I have this thing that I use when I talk to like general groups, like I often, well, pre COVID at least would go in and talk to like prenatal yoga circles Um, and I have this really fun handout I use called the giant list of birth decisions. And the first thing on it is, um, I can't remember how I phrased it, but it's, it's all about who you've chosen, who your provider is. And I think I even have on there, like, have you interviewed a midwife? No, really. I wrote like, no, really. Have you actually sat down with a midwife? Um, even if you think you don't want one, that's the other thing too. Right. And then if you're choosing an OB, um, you know, do you realize that they're probably not going to actually be the provider that's there on the day of birth? Mm -hmm. Continuity of care is one of the biggest issues I think in the U S currently in terms of like birth culture and the way that we do birth, that people don't have that continuity with somebody through pregnancy, the birth and the postpartum. It's so piecemeal. So, um, yeah, like you had used the word trauma. I think so much birth trauma comes from that mismatch. Um, and and sometimes you don't even know what questions to ask. It can be so tricky. And and that's where I really want to bring it back to like, we need to be teaching kids about birth. Yeah, we do. Starting early. Can you think of any other industry that we have where you would interview that industry the same way as we go about interviewing midwives? I can't think of, I mean, hmm. can you think of any, you go to the car place and they tell you that you, you know, <laughs> that your alternator is broken. You just kind of take their word for it. But sometimes, well, I mean, if it's, if the car won't start, then it's obviously, but, (laughs) but you like, we're used to going to get second opinions about our, you know, installing a new roof or buying a new TV. I mean, my husband has put more effort into finding a roofing company. Well, and I think that's comes, I think that the root of the issue really is that, people are taught that when it comes to pregnancy and birth and our health in general, but I think it's like hyper the case. What am I trying to say? Like it's way more the case in pregnancy and birth. Um, but with health in general, we're taught that we have to trust somebody else, that they're correct. Um, but like you said, even like, you know, when people have other kinds of other health issues, they get second opinions, but in birth, there's this uh, distrust of our own knowing. And that's where I think that our birth education and, you know, community outreach and community capacity building has to be focused is how do we restore women's trust in themselves and, and then also give them the courage to speak whatever their truth is, um, so that they don't get steamrolled 
by their provider or their partner. I've had so many people say, I really wanted to hire you or I wanted to hire a midwife, but my partner's not on board with home birth. And it's like, his body is not going to be the one that has the ramifications. Um, you know, and not just on the physical level, but there's all the other pieces too. when, you know, you have a traumatic birth. So, um, it's tricky. Yeah. So going back to, you said we have to teach our little children. Um, what kind of things can we teach? Start talking? How young do you start talking? I mean, obviously if your older children are going to understand this process a lot more than your younger children, if you keep having babies, like (laughs) my son, he's like, he's watched both of his sister's births and he gets it. Um, my little one watches the birth films I shoot, but, um, when do you start? Like, when do you start these conversations? How do you start the conversations? What does it look like? It's a great question. So I have two kids and one's six and one is one. Um, and for, you know, I don't know what it's like for other people since I'm a midwife, but it's just a thing that we talk about all the time since it's what mom does. Right. And, um, I do photos as I do birth photography for clients as well. So I'm often, you know, editing birth photos and it's just like part of their normal experience. I don't know about the one-year-old. He's not really paying attention to much at this point, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we watch my daughter's birth video every year on her birthday. And, um, it's just, I think it's one of those things where however you can bring it up in conversation in an age appropriate way, I think there's no such thing as too early, and we were all born and removing that shame and stigma around it is huge. And something that I sometimes don't even know how to do because I'm so far removed from that. But Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say there's probably zero filter in your house, but do you like anatomical terms? I know I've heard lots of people say you use the anatomical terms. You must, but I had a child who was super gregarious and very friendly. He would go up to random people in the restaurant and say, um, your, your hair is beautiful. Uh, how did you do it? You know, he was, I was a great future politician. It's fine. And, um, but I could just, I I mean, he would go up, he would literally go up to women and say, you have beautiful milkies. And I was like, see, here's the thing coming up from a two and a half year old or a three year old. That's cute. Like you just laughed, but if he'd come up and said, you have beautiful breasts, that would have been like very inappropriate social behavior. And so I was always like, no, maybe use the softer word first and then teach the anatomical term later. But I've gotten so much pushback because my kids, again, grew up with this. I I do birth videos. They don't watch me edit all the time, but they watch the finished birth videos and and I breastfed all of them for way too many years. And so (laughs) we called them milky hole, milky, milkies and baby holes. And my girls are... I, t- I taught the word vagina when they were six and eight because I was like, okay, now right. we're ready. Yeah. And I think that that's, yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, I just, I don't even know how to frame that, but yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, like, how do you start? What, what did you about it without shame? Yeah. And if you have the intention, I think of eventually talking about it in the terms that they should use as, a, you know, young adults, like yeah, as long as they're not calling them milky so when they're 25, like, yeah. I well, think they, I loved it when they saw me get dressed one day and they said, wow, am I going to get to wear a milky holder like that too? And I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like when, I think it's the intention behind it. It's like, um, you know, if we're not, if we're avoiding those words because we're like ashamed of them, as opposed to like, this is like the cute kid version and we'll talk more about it. You know, you yeah, know. is that okay? I guess I'm looking for validation here because I just I'll validate you. <laughs> all right, all right. So those those of you out there who are just not ready to teach anatomical terms, it's okay. Yeah, just focus on like why not, and if it's because you're feeling shame about them, like then that's a thing to work on. But well, it's not even shame, but it's like almost like uh, it makes more sense to them. Like I remember having this discussion with my uh, four year old that boys only have two holes and girls have three. Or, yeah. Yeah. And wh- what are the holes called? And that was, well, there's the pee pee hole, the poo poo hole and the baby hole. <laughs> and her like, because then she was all hung up on learning like what that meant, imp- what that the implications for that were in her own body instead of learning totally. the words. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, see, like that seems like it's not based in shame or fear of talking about it, obviously, because you were totally talking about it in a super direct way. Yeah. Which I Great. Yeah. My daughter kind of alternates. She, she uses yoni and then also vagina, but, um, 
but I think it's cuter when she calls it a yoni. So. Uh, yeah, that's good. I should have touched that, that word. I didn't learn that word till later. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I, and I just also just explaining to them their own, well, I thought my, the pinnacle, my daughter's going to hate this. Let me quote this. Um, but she asked me, she's like, am I going to have big, beautiful milkies like you when, when I grow up? And I was like, well, the genetics are on your side, girlfriend. Yeah. Um, but I just thought that that was really cool that she was able to say that as a little girl. She's like five or six. I thought mm-hmm. that was neat because I, I, my first reaction to her was like, <gasps> we're talking about my body here. And to her, there was no shame. So I thought that's, that's pretty cool. So I could just deal with my own like insecurities from the way I was raised, but just not pass them on to her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's my goal. Like as long as, I mean, the specifics aren't as important. I feel like as long as the goal is to like, yeah, help, especially daughters, but really all kids, right. Like feel comfortable in their bodies and comfortable asking questions and also like really cultivating from the earliest time, um, you know, like radical consent is something that we talk about being really important in birth work. Um, and, and yeah, doing talk, that from- yeah, talk about that. What does radical consent look like for a little girl? Yeah. Just like asking about everything, you know, do you want a hug? Do you want a kiss? And it just becoming second nature. Um, my daughter likes to play this funny game now, or like last night as I was putting her to bed, I was like, do you want to have a kiss before bed? And she was like, mm, and then like does like, nope, I don't. Um, but then a minute later, she's like, okay, I'm ready for a kiss now. And so it kind of becomes this almost like playful thing um, where she can practice and she knows, um, and I'm way better at it than my partner. So he, they, she actually gets pretty mad at him and she'll scream like, you're in my bubble is what she'll scream at him. If he like get <laughs> close even without asking. That's what happens but, when one parent is enlightened and the other one isn't. <laughs> kidding. I didn't want to say it, but yeah, that's pretty much it. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're teaching them, um, you know, do you want tickles or no? Or if somebody gives you tickles and you don't want it, cause that's, you know, people like to tickle little kids and I'm just like, keep your hands off my children. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so I have the six-year-old and the one-year-old. And so that's something that comes up at our house too, is she'll, she'll tickle him and he sounds like he likes it. And so we always, I always say like, okay, like let's give him a second and see if he actually was liking it or if he was ready to be done with the tickle. (gasps) That's so cool. So showing her what it looks like on a younger person. Mm -hmm. Cause he Mm -hmm. doesn't have the word to tell us. So so she's got to look at body language. Yeah, and like, how does that sound? Like, once he's done laughing, is he like, eh, or is he like more? So yeah, because you can definitely tell with a one-year-old. Yeah. So then, so then translating that into her own experiences with her body later. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you know. Hopefully, I mean, we're on this new generation. I know some of our generation were taught that way, but I know as a whole, still in the eighties, nineties, we weren't really taught a lot of body autonomy. And so now with our new children, <laughs> I feel like this this generation our children, what are they, they're generation tiny right now, Um, but yeah, they will, you know, a doctor says, well, I got to do this. She'll be like, really? Yeah, like, wait, this is so Tell me why. (laughs) Well, and like, we don't have to talk a ton about it, but, you know, within midwifery, there's so much room for improvement around radical consent too. So like the example I give a lot, um, which saying that about the doctor made me think of it from my own experiences. I haven't been there much in the last 10 years, but, um, where they're like, sit down and like, it's time to take your, you know, I'm going to take your blood pressure. Like, it's just a thing. And that's what midwives do too. Typically is like, okay, now I'm going to do your blood pressure. Now I'm going to feel your belly. Now I'm going to do this. Um, even if it's like in a softer, like sweeter way. Um, so that's something I practice with my clients is every single thing. So I ask, do you want me to take your blood pressure today? And then it's a conversation, which like, Sounds kind of ridiculous, but it sets up, you know, it gives them a chance to practice that relationship with me prior to the birth. Mm. Um, and, and like I said, it gets messy because sometimes people are like, no, I don't want you to do my blood pressure today. Or, and, and, and do, am I okay with that? Right. And so, um, I am. Yeah, that's actually an amazing segue into my next question. How do you put your fear aside when a woman makes a choice that you don't agree with about her body? Like she wants to take a drug that's not recommended or she doesn't want to go, she does not have her blood pressure or she doesn't want to do the glucose tolerance test or she doesn't want to be weighed or any of these things. She refuses. 
um, how do you put your fear, your concerns behind the preferences of the woman? So it's really easy for me because I didn't do any of those things either. Oh. <laughs> so like, I don't personally hold fear around um, not doing a lot of the routine things because one, like philosophically it lines up for me, but also, um, you know, evident, evidence wise, like we don't have strong evidence that our prenatal care really does anything. Um, and I've never, and I have this written in my explanation of services that I give people when we do an interview. Um, I've only had maybe one or two circumstances where what somebody wanted to do crossed one of my boundaries. Um, and they were pretty extreme situations. Um, and at that point, then it's, you know, we have to still honor our own boundary. And again, it goes back to, to taking responsibility for that, I think. So if somebody was like, you know, had all the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia and they're like, no, I'm not going to do my blood pressure. I would probably be like, you know what? Like that feels a little bit like I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't do that for you and investigate this further. Um, so either, you know, that's one of those, that would be like a hard boundary for me, I guess, Yeah. which is never, it's never come up because but you're still respecting her choice. But if she makes a choice, then you can no longer provide service for her, but that's a choice you respect. Yeah. Right. Everyone should, should do their own thing. Yeah. I, so yeah. What, what is something, what is some of the, what's some of the language that a woman can use when a provider is, she can tell that the provider is putting their personal fear or their personal stuff in front of her needs, her desires? What are some of the things she could say maybe to that provider to just remind them whose body this is? I think you just said it perfectly. Well, that's snarky. <laughs> I mean, no, that's not right. no, I mean, I have the, I have a, a personal experience where I, and, but it's so hard. It is so hard. Like you said, we weren't raised this way. So I went to go see an OB at 34 weeks with my daughter. Um, I was on blood pressure medication for my blood pressure in pregnancy. And I wanted a consult around my dosing and possibly trying some other medication. Um, so I emailed him ahead of time saying all of this and saying like, I want to come see you, but I just want to be clear up front. Like I'm not going to tolerate any, anything around like trying to talk me out of this choice. Um, I'm just looking for this specific sort of help. Um, and he was like, yep, I totally understand. I respect, you know, whatever it is you're going to do. And I went there and that was totally not at all how I was treated. Wow. Um, and I left feeling just like, so, I don't know, just so, I don't know, anxious and not treated like a human, you know, like my feeling, my dignity was taken away in a lot of ways. He immediately launched into like why I shouldn't have a home birth and, and telling me what a hospital birth with him would look like, um, which sounded like a total nightmare, um, from, and he's like one of the more open-minded OBs, uh, that was in Arizona that was recommended to me. Um, and I did a lot of research. So, Anyways, he was like, you're going to have a mandatory epidural. We're going to induce you at 37 weeks. If you get to 37 weeks, um, just like, yeah, you can't use water, you know, no laboring in water, just all kinds of bizarre rules that he wanted to impose on me. And I was like, well, if I wasn't already sure I wanted to have a home birth, I am now. Anyways, my point is I went in as a seasoned apprentice midwife. I was close to being done with my apprenticeship. Um, I'm somebody who thinks about these things and I still left feeling like not heard. And so I don't know, like on the one hand, it's as simple as what you had said, which is like, Hey, I just want to pause here. I'm noticing a lot of fear that you're throwing my way. <laughs> this is my body and my choice. Yeah. But if you point out that it's their fear, that's going to put them even more in defense mode. Well, I'm not afraid. You're the crazy person who wants to give birth in water. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, I, I really respect the skills that hospital providers have and, um, and other midwives that don't practice the way I do. Like I respect those skills and that everyone is, you know, doing the best they can do. Um, but it would make everyone's life easier. I think if, um, if we all kind of got on board with the radical consent piece, mm -hmm. because most people that go to the hospital 
are happy with the, I mean, maybe not most of them are happy. A lot of them want the care that they're getting there, right? Like they would say yes to those things. Um, but the, the people who really leave their birth experience feeling negatively about it are the ones who would have really benefited from more structures being in place around like, yeah, do you want this? And, and then the provider being okay with them saying, no, I don't. Yeah. So, um, and, and, uh, there's a podcast probably is released the week before this one. Um, we talked to a midwife in, um, New Zealand and she talked about how the culture is shifting just by definition that now millennials are the professionals instead of the baby boomers. Like there's still baby boomer doctors for sure. There's still the majority, but as the millennials start taking over those roles, I, it's just crazy to me to think that I have like people my age that are lawyers, doctors, <laughs> like obese. It's just crazy to think that we're like actually adults now. I mean, I don't know. It's, what's yeah. the definition of adulting. But um, as the millennials become the primary generation that has, that is these care providers, that we're going to see a natural shift in the culture anyway. Yeah, I think there will be. And I think that now would be such a good time to be presenting these sorts of ideas to them. Um, like early on in their careers, like that has been my experience is that, and I don't know, cause I haven't been doing this for more than a decade, but you know, when I go with clients who need to transport to the hospital for some reason, um, if we are lucky enough to get a resident, you know, I feel like a lot of people used to think like, Oh, you don't want a resident because they're brand new and they're practicing and they don't know what they're doing. But now if, in my experience, they've actually been the most open-minded. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, clients are like, I'm having my baby on the floor. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess that's, I was. that's cool. And then also giving, you know, the, the reds, because of course they're being bathed in uh, the baby boomer generation's feelings. And there's nothing wrong with baby boomers. Don't like write me angry letters. But I'm just saying the general thought of that generation was that women needed to be more in stirrups than on the floor. Um, but but also are hoping that our generations, that these residents take what they learn and take the good out of it. and all of the the rich knowledge from these OBs that have decades and decades and decades of experience. And then also bringing in the autonomy, the informed consent, all of these things. And just saying, you know what, I I appreciate how you've practiced Mr. Sir, that's been an OB for 50 years, but, and I'm going to take the best of what you give me, but thou, I'm also going to add in some informed consent sprinkles. (laughs) Yeah, that would be fantastic. And, and I do think that, you know, locally, I feel like I'm seeing that I, I have this interesting story where um, we were plant. I had a client who had a breech baby and she was going to still attempt to birth at home. We did end up transporting all like mutually agreed. It felt like a good choice. Um, and we got there and she was like, can't I, you know, like the, the option presented to her was like, you know, your baby's fine. You're fine, but we don't do breech births here. Um, so I can offer you a C-section and this is a younger doctor. And she was like, are you sure you can't just like, let me try to have this baby vaginally and just monitor it more closely. Cause at home we were kind of concerned about the baby anyways. Um, and she said, no, but you know, your baby does look fine. So you could go back home. <laughs> and we were all just like, what? Like, that's the last thing I ever thought I'd heard, hear a doctor say. That's and it wasn't, cool. she was condoning it even like, it, you know, it, but she was admitting that the, there was another option and it would be to go home, um, which none of us wanted to do. So we didn't, but, um, yeah. And so I know this, I've had, other but she acknowledged, that's so cool that she acknowledged it. And that was a valid option in her mind. Like you could just go home. Not like, yeah. well, you go home crazy woman, but just yeah. you could go home and your baby looks fine. You could, you could be go home so that that doctor felt like in this situation it was probably okay, yeah. safe for her to go home. Yeah. Yeah. But you guys and stayed and ended with a C-section? Yes. Um, but all, all was well in the end, because I think that's the most important piece is that, I don't know, in my, what I've found is that even when the birth isn't the way someone wants it to go, even if it's physically traumatizing or there are emotionally traumatizing pieces, um, it's easier to heal from those experiences when the one feels like she was the one who made each decision. Every I step. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that OB just um, giving her the C-section, knowing that the, the client actually, the patient actually wanted the C-section, that this was her choice, that she wasn't just 
And yeah. that's got to make the client, the, the provider feel more, I don't know what the word, just more settled in what's going on. It's a good word. Yeah. And the same doctor that I'm thinking of, um, told another one of my clients like, Oh, you know, you shouldn't have a, you should not try to have a be back at home, but she knew that she had worked with me in the past. And she was like, I don't know what Margo thinks about that. You could ask her, but I don't think home birth with a VBAC is a, is a safe choice. So it was neat, even though she was saying she isn't into it, um, that she threw in like, well, you know, your midwife might be fine with it, <laughs> but my professional recommendation. And so I can totally respect that. Totally. Um, someone making it out to be like, you know, this is the one answer. This is the one true thing. And you have to agree. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's why appointments with me take like two hours, you know, prenatal appointments, because um, one, I like to talk to people about other things too, and like make sure that we're connected in, in building our relationship. But um, because those choices make, t- they take time, mm-hmm. you know, and it can get really messy and, um, you know. Especially, I just say like the, the funniest clients for me are the ones that are actually professionals. Like I filmed this, um, I filmed several very well-known doulas and midwives giving birth to their own babies. And they are so, in my mind, they're hilarious because they're like, wait, should I be doing this? Wait, what if I did? It's like almost like they overthink the options. And what that just goes to show is that when you're in, when you're being bathed in the pregnancy hormones, both you and your baby, you are a different person. Like in your decision-making skills, you'd be like, well, I'll never do that. I would never let a doctor do something against my consent. Or, But then you get pregnant and you have this little tiny thing growing in you and you're all of your, you question everything. So like just having a baseline of, this is what informed consent means to me. This is what autonomy means to me. Just knowing going into the whole pr- process that may change, you may feel you may feel like you're inadequate to make these choices. And so yeah. having yeah. a provider, like you said, like that OB that says, hey, it's not my deal. I don't think you should, but you could ask your midwife. That is so cool because it gives the mom then sends her home for a night full of angst. Great. That's awesome. But we need that. Like a mom needs the opportunity to work through her angst and her options. Yeah. It's really a reclaiming of her own responsibility over her body and the choices for this baby. And if we want women to be, you know, raising their children in a strong, empowered way, like we have to start. I mean, ideally we are starting, you know, at birth, at pregnancy at conception at child, you know, like it starts Mm -hmm. at the beginning. So it's not like, yeah, it's just giving people the opportunity to practice that I think is important, but not everyone wants it. Well, yeah. that And and that was my next question. Sometimes I feel like, like you and I, we are speaking to the choir. We're bathed in this birth world and the birth birth culture. We know everything and anything about birth, but what about the mom? Just like, I just need to get through this experience unbroken. Just give me the bare basics. Like what are some of the tools she could just I just want to be whole at the end of this. I don't want to like join a cult because it's kind of. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard for me. And it's not something I think I would do well with in the midwife client relationship. Um, I had somebody in this last year who felt that way to me. She, you know, she said she wanted a home birth, um, but really wasn't interested in like doing the learning that I thought was important. Um, and not making some of like the lifestyle changes and self-care choices that I think are really crucial. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny, right? Like there's a lot of midwives who are like, oh, I, they have to do a glucose tolerance test and they have to do their blood pressure at every visit. And I want to weigh them and I want to know this and that. I could care less about pretty much all of that. Um, but for me, if somebody won't do like a diet journal, that for me is like a, <laughs> like, I, I want boundaries. <laughs> Yeah. And in, in the way I framed it with this woman was, I said to her, it seems like you don't really have the bandwidth to take this on as a project. Um, and I'm going to be bringing some fear probably to your birth space because I don't know that you've quit smoking was one of the things. I don't know that you've um, taken great care of yourself nutritionally, that you've been moving, that you have this, you know, like that you've been doing those pieces and the back of my head, I'm going to be worried about a five day long labor and a hemorrhage. And, you know, there are other midwives though, who won't care. That's what I said, (laughs) who will not care about any of this. And they will show up and have zero fear. And like, you'd be a perfect client for them probably. 
Um, so I actually told her, you know, I can't, I can't be your midwife. So I kind of only, I can, yeah, I only work with the cult, the cult members. <laughs> hey, that's good to, to come out and say it. So if you are, um, if you just, yeah, well, the most of the thing I wanted to say is that there is a provider for everyone and that you yeah. don't have to feel like, I mean, the fact that you're listening to the Birth Circle podcast means that you are on the fringe, if not all the way in, you know, <laughs> our community, not our cult. Um, <laughs> But that, you know, that you are seeking this information and to just not feel overwhelmed by all of these things that you can just interview providers. Like, what is the best thing a woman could ask you in an interview that would make you like, okay, we're, we're a match. Let's do this. Yeah. For me, I guess like the question or like the thing that someone could say is like, you know, are you willing to follow my lead? you know, like, are you willing to follow my, right? So if I'm, if I'm the woman across the table and you were the midwife, that's how I'm phrasing it. Okay. Got it. Um, someone telling me, so I usually phrase it. And this is what I was going to say a minute ago too. Like when you were like, what can someone do if they want just the bare bones? Oh yeah. Um, I think it's just focusing on what you do want and how you want to feel. Mm-hmm. at the end of your birth like what is the feeling you want and find that feeling with the provider you know what I mean like find the provider that matches that feeling um and so when somebody sits across from me and they say like I want to feel like I was in charge of my experience that I was respected um when they say that to me or I just had a prenatal with someone yesterday who was like I just want no one to touch me I want no one to touch me I want no one to talk to me I want you there in case something happens I don't think anything's going to happen um, but I know I can do this on my own and, and, and that's what I want you there for. That's my, that's one of my favorites. Um, but my other favorite, if someone doesn't have like a hundred percent confidence yet, cause that's totally okay too, um, is I would love for someone to ask me, um, yeah, just those questions around consent and like, whose choice is it? And how does it work when we, when we make these choices? Um, I feel like a lot of first time moms, I did an interview with someone a few weeks ago and she's like, so what will you do or what are your thoughts if I go past 42 weeks, which is a really good question because it's kind of like a barometer, I think, mm-hmm. um, for midwives. And, um, I'm always glad when people ask me those sorts of specific questions, because to me it shows that they're, they're thinking ahead about things that could come up where there could be a mismatch. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. What, what, what are you going to do if I go over even 40 weeks? <laughs> right. 42 is kind of a big ask for a lot of providers, but 40, 41 weeks or something. Yeah. Interesting. Or like, what would you do if I had meconium in the waters? That's another one. Um, mm-hmm. I asked cause they had been with a midwife who didn't, you know, and that's what, that's the thing is like, even if you do all of your due diligence, I don't know that you can always feel like you found the perfect provider. Um, because you can't ask somebody about every single aspect. No, but uh, just those, like you said, a barometer, just asking a few things. Like if you tell your, I mean, even if you know the word meconium, then the provider, that's telling the provider you are, you want a lot of um, conversation around your birth. And if they're not one to give one that to you, they're going to feel uncomfortable with that question. And they're going to be like, well, we'll get to there when we get to it or whatever. And you're going to be like, oh, okay. So this provider doesn't want a lot of, doesn't like a lot of hard questions. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that feeling piece comes in, you know, cause it is ultimately a relationship. Although it goes back to like, even if you hire a certain OB or do your care with an, a certain OB, you're probably not going to have them at your birth, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it gets really extra tricky, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ultimately when you're trying to find the right provider or the right location or whatever, um, I think relying on that feeling sense is important. And that yeah. too, like, I feel good here. You know, like, I feel like, you know, like you said, if someone just wants to come out the other side, like with a vaginal birth and feeling like, I don't know, fine about their birth, <laughs> um, then yeah, look for that. Yeah. Fine feeling. I, I, you're you're going to be a meme. So I, I quoted it. Decide the feeling you want your birth and find the provider that matches that feeling. That is that is the most, oh, that's such good advice. It just like breaks it down to just the basic. Which I can't take credit. That's definitely, well, I mean, in the birth context, I suppose, but um, both Marin and myself really love the work of Danielle Laporte. 
if you're familiar with her and the desire mm-hmm. map. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, so that's a thing that we've both uh, worked on with that's ourselves awesome. and clients. Cool. Okay. So how can people find more about you, listen to your podcast and especially if they're in Minnesota, how can they find you? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can find all my indie birth stuff that I'm up to at indiebirth.org. We also have indiebirthmidwiferyschool.org if you're somebody who's curious about becoming an autonomous independent midwife. Ooh. We ha- are on Instagram and Facebook, Indie, uh, Indie Birth and Indie Birth Association on Facebook. Where else? Um, my podcast is called Well Actually, and it's all the places you would find a podcast. Marin's podcast is Taking Back Birth, and she is more consistent than me, like I said, and has tons of episodes. Um, and then my personal midwifery practice is called Duluth Midwife, D-U-L-U-T-H, um, which is DuluthMidwife.com. And I'm also on Facebook. And, um, oh, and we also have a really fun Facebook group as well, if people are wanting another way to connect. Um, we have too much stuff going on. We also have our own platform, but if you find us on <laughs> So basically can. all things birth, ready to, to join the community. <laughs> ready to join the cult. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to call it a cult, but it's just kind of funny. Um, wow. Thank you so much. It's been such an interesting conversation. I, and it's been neat to uh, connect with somebody. Um, I didn't realize Minnesota laws were so similar to yeah. Utah. So yeah. that's really neat. and. Minnesota and Utah unite. Let's get the rest of the country on board. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, and I guess I forgot to mention too, we do have a parent course. So we have all the podcasts and we also have a parent course called 13 Moons, which is all this kind of goodness. Oh, that's such a neat name. Very cool. Okay. So if you have any questions, you can reach out to me at media at birthcircle.com and I will put you in connection with her, or you can Google all the things she just said and <laughs> find her. Or do you want to give them your email address? Yeah, it's margo at indiebirth.org. Margo at indiebirth.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Margo. You're so welcome. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.